0: We are continuing uh, with our second sermon in the sermon series called Reclaim on the Protestant Reformation, looking at the five core essential truths of the Protestant Reformation. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. And we are spending two weeks in each, so this is our first week on Scripture alone. And I'm calling this the principle that changed everything. I really believe this was the foundational principle, foundational truth, foundational idea that launched the Protestant Reformation. And We're looking at the life of Luther because it was 500 years ago this October that he, on October 31st, 1517, nailed the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg. And that was the beginning of of opening a conversation. It was his desire to start a conversation in the Roman Catholic Church uh, on some things that he had questions about. Some practices that were being performed that he said, wait a minute, this is not biblical. Surely the religious leaders want to address this. And they did. And it didn't go very well. And so in 1517, he had posted his his 95 theses. We're going to look... Today, at 1521, so we're several years later, and in 1520, if we go back one year, the Pope at that time, Pope Leo X, had written what's called a formal, a papal bull. It's, it's an official church declaration from the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. Because in the time between 1517 and 1520, Luther had been busy. He had written many things. And the Pope was officially declaring that Luther's writings were wrong. And he needed to recant. He was challenging Luther to say, you need to change your mind on these issues. You need to admit that you were wrong. And the emperor of the Roman Empire convened what's known as a diet. It is a a, a gathering, kind of like a tribunal or a court. And in 1521, it is known as the Diet of Worms. And Luther was called to recant of his writings, publicly, before the Roman emperor. This isn't like the local mayor, this is the big cheese. And and he's calling Luther into his presence. And so there's Luther with all these high-ranking Roman Catholic authorities in in their their lavish outfits. And there's Luther, a poor and humble monk, a very plain robe, probably tied at the waist with a simple rope. And they bring him into a room and there on a table in front of him are all the things he has written. And they ask him a simple question. Will you recant? Will you deny the truth that you have stated in these things? Will you go back on what you said? Will you admit that you were wrong and retract all of these writings? Luther is known for many things, Uh, and sometimes he's known for being very pig-headed, aptly so. He's known for being a little impetuous, uh, in deed and in word. But I think Luther does a very wise thing in this moment because he realized the gravity of the situation. If he recanted, he would be saying that everything he had done up to this point was wrong. But if he didn't, he would be proclaimed a heretic, arrested, and probably put to death. Very, very quickly. In fact, history had shown that a man named John Huss had been brought into the presence of such a tribunal. He had been granted safe passage like Luther had been. And yet John, after the tribunal was over, was in fact put to death. All of this was probably in Luther's mind. And so he did a wise thing. Understanding the gravity of the situation, he said, I need some time. See, Luther wasn't out to get the Roman Catholic Church. He wasn't this brash, uh, flying-off-the-handle person that sometimes he's convicted of being. He was actually incredibly thoughtful, and he understood what had to be done here had to be done very carefully. So he said, I need some time. They said, you got 24 hours. The next day, they reconvened, and he was asked the same question. Will you recant? After lots of discussion, they finally say, Luther, you need to answer plainly. Yes or no? Will you recant? And this is what Luther says. And this, I believe, in many ways, is the ultimate break in the beginning of the the Protestant Reformation. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures... Or by clear reason, for I do not trust in either the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant of anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Understand what he's saying. He's saying, I wrote those things based on what Scripture says. So if you're challenging me and saying that I need to recant, that I need to say that I'm wrong, you need to challenge me from Scripture. And I'm fully willing to admit, if somebody can show me from God's holy word that I am wrong, I will recant. I will change my mind. And all the people gathered there, and the Roman authorities gave no such rebuke from Scripture. What they said instead was basically, who do you think you are? You are going against the traditions of the church. You are going against the Pope, the leader of the church. You are going against our authorities. And Luther says, I have another authority. It is the word of God. This was a lightning bolt in the church. You see, in this moment, Luther understood that there was a difference There was the Catholic authority, and then there was the Word of God. And these things that he thought were together and got along, and certainly the church officials would understand that they were under the authority of the Scriptures. Surely that's where this conversation was going to go. That was not the truth at all. The Roman Catholic authorities of that day believed themselves to be an authority over Scripture. And if Scripture disagreed with them, or anything that they did or said, Then they won because they were an authority. In many ways, at this point, Luther understood that what happened was that the Roman Catholic authorities, in his mind, were making themselves the enemies of Scripture. Understand what this must have meant to Luther. He loved the church. His hope was not to break the church. It wasn't to split off from the church. His hope was to discuss with the church, based on the authority of God's word, some things that were being taught, some things that were being practiced. But instead, what opened up was this huge can of worms on authority. No pun intended, although it is kind of funny. At the diet of worms. Never mind, you'll laugh later. See, there's a can of worms in the diet. Never mind. And it raises the question. And this was the essential question. If you look at the 95 Theses, yes, there's all this stuff about selling indulgences and you can pay money to get your relatives out of purgatory. And and Luther understood that that was a problem. That wasn't in Scripture. It was an abuse of Scripture. It was an abuse of authority. But under all of the 95 Theses, there's a running question. How can the Pope have the authority to declare something that goes against Scripture? Scripture. And it asks, or it questions then, or raises the question, who's in charge? Now we need to define authority and and go back a ways and understand that in the early church, as in the Jewish culture, the authority over all of their religious ideas, over all of their practice, frankly, over all of reality, was never in question. It was the declared word of God. This wasn't something that that never had been assumed or never been understood. Luther wasn't making this up. He was going back into the earliest traditions of the church and the church leadership and the church writings. And he's saying, look, it's there. Scripture was read publicly in the local synagogues. In the early church, Scripture was valued. When Paul wrote his letters, he didn't write Romans and say, now don't let anybody see this. You leaders, you read it and then you tell the people what it means. He said, no, get up in front of the church and read this. Let everybody hear it. In the Jewish synagogues, they would bring in the scroll. They would walk through the synagogues and people would touch it and kiss it because they believed in the power and the authority of the word of God. And they would listen to it as thus says the Lord. God has spoken. And When God speaks, you better listen. Did you know that when scholars first really dug into the Greek New Testament, they struggled with something? You see, the language of the Greek New Testament is different, slightly, than a lot of the languages of the Greek that was used by scholars. So we have writings of Aristotle and Plato and others like that. And we have this. And yet, these scholars are reading the Greek New Testament and saying it's different. And so they came up with a conclusion. It is a higher, more spiritual level of Greek. Certainly, the the church understood that this was special and they had almost an elevated language. Well, scholars went on to find grocery lists, commands to servants. Normal, everyday things written down on clay pots and shards and written on papyruses and written on paper and and recorded and and just regular, unimportant sort of things. And you know what was amazing? That Greek uh, matched the Greek of the New Testament. It's called Koine Greek. It means common. You see, the New Testament was written in the normal, everyday language of the people. Do you think Paul was unfamiliar with the the more scholarly level of Greek? Of course he was familiar with it. He was well-studied, and yet he still wrote in the common everyday language. Why? Because God's word was meant to be read and understood. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets would declare, Thus says the Lord. And whenever a prophet said that, it was binding on the prophet, it was binding on the Lord's people. And if that prophecy contained any sort of uh, a prophetic word about something that was going to happen, if that thing did not happen, guess what happened to that prophet? He was put to death. Because nobody who made a mistake was able to say, thus said the Lord. Evidently, there's somebody that has come out Even more recently, another one of these guys coming up and saying, the end of the world is, when was it, Mark? Uh, This coming Saturday. So, you know, pack your things, I guess. (laughs) What amazes me is the people, I don't know if this is one of them, but the people that make these predictions, and then they come back, say, oh, no, no, I was off a little bit, I'll make another one. Yeah, according to Scripture, there's some pretty serious consequences there. Now, I'm not saying go out and kill these people when they're wrong. Be very careful, okay? I could see somebody going home, pastor said we should kill them. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is serious. When the Lord speaks, and you say the Lord speaks, and you're wrong, there are serious, serious consequences. Luther believed that this was the church's understanding of Scripture. It had been the church's understanding of Scripture for a long time. And it certainly was Luther's understanding of Scripture. But things had changed. You see, in the Roman Catholic Church, authority was kind of a mixed bag. Yes, Scriptures had authority, but so also did the Pope. And so also did church councils and and these groups of religious leaders that would get together. And these things did not always agree with each other. And so it raises the question, well, when there's a disagreement among these various authorities... Who wins? Who's the ultimate authority? Scripture, Luther assumed, would be the ultimate authority. The Catholic Church assumed differently. You see, they said that either the Pope or the councils were in authority. This had so many different ramifications. You see, the Roman Catholic Church didn't use the Greek copy of the New Testament, the koine, the common understanding. And they certainly wouldn't allow it to be translated into the common understanding or the language of the day. In fact, the people that were trying to translate the word of the Lord into German and other languages around the Roman Empire, guess what happened to them? Well, they were killed because you weren't allowed to do that. It had to be in Latin. Why? Why Latin? Because that's what it was written in? No, it wasn't. It was in Latin because then the church could control it. And only the scholars could read it. And only the priests and and the cardinals and the pope, only they could read it and interpret it and tell everybody else what it meant. And so they had these authority structures. But Luther had a dilemma. And he said it in his statement it is proven from history these authorities erred, they made mistakes. It was clear that they weren't always right. So how can you have an ultimate authority that isn't right all the time? Sitting in judgment on the word of God. There was a lot of discussion throughout the history of the church. Were church councils over popes or popes over church councils? There's a very interesting story where at one time in the Roman Catholic Church, there were three people that claimed the right to be the pope. Each one excommunicated the other. Three popes all going to hell by their own admission. So a council was formed and they came together and they said that church councils have the authority to proclaim who the pope is. We're over the pope. And so they picked a fourth person to be the pope. Things are settled, right? Well, the guy they picked to be the pope, catch this, said that the council didn't have the authority to do that because the pope was in charge. So you're the Pope because the council said so, but you just said they don't have the right to say so, so you don't have the right to say, they don't have the right to say you have the... Wait a minute. You can understand Luther's conundrum here. What do you do with that? Where's the ultimate authority? There's also historical proof that many of the Popes had been wrong. Some of them had done horrible and despicable things. These people were the mouthpiece of the Lord God Almighty. Pope John XII in the 900s gave land to his mistress, murdered several people. And get this, he was killed by a man who caught the Pope in bed with his wife. These are people that the Catholic Church said they can't err, they can't can't be wrong. Pope Urban VI complained that he did not hear enough screaming when cardinals who had conspired against him were being tortured. Pope Leo X, who was the pope during Luther's day, was known for lavish, expensive parties. In fact, everything that the previous pope had gained, all, all the funds of the church that he had gathered up, history records, Pope Leo X, spent one-seventh of it, that's a huge chunk, on one ceremony. One. And this is the same pope going to the peasants who can barely put food on their table and saying, you have to give your money to get your relatives out of purgatory. Meanwhile, he's spending money on frivolous things. Luther knew all of this, as did many others. But he still loved the church. He didn't set out to challenge the church. He didn't set out to undermine it. He didn't set out to declare that the Pope was wrong and he was right. He wasn't trying to make himself a new Pope. He just wanted to raise the issue. Let's look at what's going on in the church and let's weigh it against Scripture. Isn't that easy for us all to agree on? But it wasn't. You see, at the Diet of Worms, and many other times throughout his life, as he appeals to Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. The Roman Catholic's response was not to look at Scripture. It was to say, who do you think you are? To go against what we say. It is right because we say it. We don't have to justify it through Scripture. Now, there were consequences to this. When Luther refused to recant of his writings, I truly believe that was a a huge tipping point because the Roman Catholic Church now saw him not as one in their midst undermining them, they saw him as one outside their midst. And they declared him to be a heretic. In fact, they issued a warrant for his arrest. Anyone could capture Luther and maybe turn him over to the officials. History and historians say it's quite possible they could have just put him to death themselves, and nobody would have cared. Luther understood at this point as well. He was no longer part of the Catholic Church. He was bound by Scripture. And he did not believe that those Roman Catholic leaders were following Scripture. Luther, as I said earlier, had been granted safe passage, so he was allowed to leave, although again, in recent history, somebody had been given the same uh, opportunity and been murdered on his way home or captured and then murdered later. Luther also was captured on his way home. He was taken hostage, and his friends were very worried. Fortunately, it was actually a friend who took him hostage. They were so worried that Luther wouldn't accept help, help and that Luther would, in fact, be arrested and put to death that they took the proactive step to just capture them, him themselves. It's good to have friends like that, I guess. And he was kept in his friend's castle for several years to keep him safe. The Protestant Reformation at this point was unavoidable. There was a clear split. Those who believed in the authority of Scripture over all other authorities and those that said, no, we will follow the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. This is the principle known as sola scriptura, or scripture alone. And it is, I believe, the principle that changed everything in the Protestant Reformation. There are other doctrines we'll go into, grace, faith. Those are the two big key doctrines that become a a touch point for the Reformation. But this is the one that started it all. That scripture is the ultimate authority. So we need to look at what does this mean? What does sola scriptura mean? It means that Scripture is the ultimate authority. It is the truth that determines and judges all other truths. It is the truth that all other things must be weighed against. It is the ultimate authority. So when anything else disagrees with Scripture, Scripture is right and they are by necessity wrong. No one has the authority to sit over Scripture and change what it says. We have a unit of measurement called the foot. Lovely English measuring system. Now imagine I said, well, my foot's like 10 inches. Somebody else said, well, my foot's 16 inches. My foot's 20 inches. That's a big foot. Well, who's right? You see, somewhere there's a a standard, there's something laid out that says this is a foot. It has to be this. And everything else that is declared to be a foot gets measured against that. And if it's different, guess what? This is right. Everything else is wrong. It is the standard that judges all other standards. That's what Luther, and frankly, that's what we believe today, is saying about Scripture. It is the standard that determines if the other standards are right or wrong. We need Scripture's authority. We need Scripture's authority because we all have different points of view and that's good and it can be rich and wonderful to come together and discern and discuss all those different points of view. It can be a wonderful experience. But then we get into situations where we are claiming truth. We are claiming right and wrong. Who wins? Who wins? You see the world has a history of everyone trying to come up with their own standard. You look at things going on in our country, you think look at things going on in our culture, in our world, and you can go all the way back to the garden of Eden and see the effects of everybody saying, "I'm right, you're wrong, you have to do what I say." And the other person says, "Wait a minute, I'm right, you're wrong, you have to do what I say. Can't we all just get along?" And we wonder why there's so much struggle. It really does go back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, In the Garden of Eden, everything is made. Everything is wonderful. Adam and Eve are given everything they could possibly need. And two trees are created. One of them is the Tree of Life. The Tree of Life continues in Scripture. Did you know that? It pops up again and again as this beautiful image of the eternal life-giving God, the source of ultimate life. Not a tree, but coming from the Lord. But it was a symbol of that. I believe it was a real tree, but it's a real tree that meant something. And it's this beautiful picture that God gives life unending. In Revelation, the tree comes up again and it says it yields its fruit constantly, always giving life without fail and unending. And then we get to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And somehow, somewhere along the way, in our children's Sunday school classes, we are taught God made a rule, they broke the rule, and that was it. It's true as far as it goes, but we forget what the tree was. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, we say, well, why did God create a tree and then just say, oh, I'm going to make it and it's wonderful, but you can't have it. Because our God is mean and nasty that way. But if the tree of life meant something, so also does the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If the tree of life was the source of life and they could take from the source of life, then isn't the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the source of the knowledge of good and evil? And scholars look at that and say, in Hebrew mindset, this was the ability to state what is good and what is evil. It was a statement of authority. And we see this in the way the devil comes to Eve. What does he say to Eve? Did God really say? Right there. And the first challenge to God's authority, and the first sin, right there is the questioning of the authority of what God has said. The reason they were not to take of that tree was not just some cosmic test like they're rats in a maze. It is God clearly saying, this is my authority. I say what's right and wrong. You don't get to. You will take that from me. Chapter 1 of Romans goes on to talk about the effects of sin. In verse 21 it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And the rest of the chapter goes on to show the natural consequences of humanity claiming the authority to declare right and wrong when they were never to do that. Why do I bring this up? It's because we desperately need a standard of authority. And we are really, really bad at it. Our sinful hearts are messed up, so when we look at something to say what's right and what's wrong, we are messed up. Our vision is blurred. We are not equipped to make those statements. We need some other standard of authority to say, I believe this, and then weigh it against something and say, yes, that's true, or oops, it's not true. I messed up. I'm wrong. Now, some will say, well, Scripture never meant to be that standard. It, it never was trying to be that sort of standard. It always understood that, that there would need to be authorities to teach these things and to interpret these things. Open with, with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I just want to look at this one chapter you can't really preach about Scripture alone without actually, you know, looking at Scripture. And I just want you to see one situation where Paul is interacting with Timothy. Paul's writing a letter to this young man, a young pastor, about things going on in the culture, things going on in Timothy's church. I want to pick it up in chapter 3 right from the beginning. You can follow along, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved mind who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, as in the case of those men, Their folly will be made clear to everyone. Now understand what's going on that Paul's writing about here. These are not just sinful people being sinners. He's not saying, look at these horrible people in your culture. Isn't it awful that they act this way? He's saying these are people trying to teach other people that they are right and they are wrong. They're trying to impose their standard upon you. And yet if you look at their life, they are clearly out of line with God's standard. These are false teachers. How do you deal with a false teacher? How, if there's no standard of right and wrong, can you answer somebody like that? Well, let's look at what Paul does. Verse 10, You, however, speaking to Timothy, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured." Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So what's Paul's answer? Well, on the face of it, it looks like Paul's answer is, see, these guys, they're trying to point to themselves, and they're wrong in doing that. But Timothy, you should look at me. I'm the new standard. I'm the authority. Look at my wonderful life. Is that what he's doing? Well, if this was the only passage you read, then you might think, "Eh, it kind of is. But we have to keep going because Paul would never do that. So he goes on, verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Now just stop there. Now it would be easy to look at this part and say, See, he's just telling Timothy you need to listen to your inner voice. You need to listen to yourself. Be true to yourself, Timothy. Think of how you were raised in your culture. You be you. But that's not what he's saying either. How is he weighing what these false teachers say, what he says, and what Timothy says? Well, we have to go on to see what is the ultimate standard, verse 15, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. He says, there's the standard, Timothy. God's word which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And catch this, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why is Scripture the authority? It is the authority because it is God-breathed inspired by God. These are God's words given to us. It is the very word of the Lord. When you read scripture, you are reading the proclamation, thus says the Lord. That's the difference between me saying something and scripture saying saying something. I get things wrong. I even get tongue-tied sometimes. (laughs) I plan those illustrations carefully. The popes erred. They messed up. Luther made mistakes. He understood that. In fact, at the Diet of Worms, he even said, there are some things I wrote in there about other people and I was probably a little too harsh. And he apologized for it. But he said, but there are things in there that are in line with Scripture. I cannot recant of that. It is the word of the Lord because it is from Scripture, not from Luther. Paul wasn't saying to Timothy, hey, I'm your authority. He wasn't claiming the authority of a pope. He's saying, look where I'm looking, Timothy. I look to Scripture. You look there too. You don't replace one bad standard and bad teachers with just hopefully a slightly better teacher. You replace bad teaching and bad teachers by looking at the Word of God. That's why in Acts chapter 17, as Paul and Barnabas would go around and they would preach the word of the Lord, they would tell people about Jesus Christ and salvation through Christ. In Christ alone, the Jews of the city did a beautiful thing. It said they received the message with great eagerness. They loved what they were being taught. But look at what it says. And examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Why? Why? They didn't just say, well, Paul's a good guy. He said it. He must be right. They said, no, we're going to weigh this against the text, the Word of God. So how do we wrap this up? Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone means that Scripture is the ultimate judge of all truth and the authority, the ultimate authority over all authorities. We said when we moved to elders in this church... And a lot of people were worried. Well, are elders going to be those kind of religious leaders that that they say jump and we all say how high? Whatever they say goes, that's just the way it is. And we tried very hard and we continue to do so to try very hard to say, no, that's not the way it works. The elders' authority comes from the word of God alone. The elders have authority when they are teaching, proclaiming the word of God. They don't get to say, I'm an elder, you do what I say. They have to show it from God's Word. Luther understood that about the popes as well. He said the moment they ignore the Word of the Lord and put themselves as the authority over God's Word is the moment they are no longer an authority whatsoever. He said a common person, a peasant in a barnyard, reading the Word of the Lord and believing it and understanding it, knew more about God's Word than the pope who ignored it. Now, this doesn't mean, and we're going to look at this more next week, that we shouldn't listen to anything but Scripture. You see, some Christians have taken this so far, they say, Scripture alone, therefore, I don't need to go to church, I don't need to be in a Bible study, I don't need sermons, I don't need to worship together with other believers because I believe in Scripture alone. There's a big problem with that. Scripture says they're wrong. (laughs) Scripture says we need each other. We need to come together with God's holy word. We need to listen and discuss together. We need to be informed and to worship together. Luther also saw value in reading what others had written, even outside of scripture. He read from the early church fathers, Augustine and others. He understood that what they said as it pointed to scripture and was based on scripture was valuable. Luther also believed that reading things about Scripture was helpful. Otherwise, why would he have ever written anything? I mean, think about it. If you're a person that believes that you should never read anything other than the Bible, you really couldn't write a book about it, could you? Because basically, in the middle of the book, people would have to give it back and say, I shouldn't be reading this. Luther wasn't saying that we can't learn from anything else. But he was saying that all those things have to be judged according to God's Word. It's why, as a church, we have things like a statement of faith. It's why we have a membership covenant. It's, it's why we have these things stating this is who we are. And people say, well, where is it in God's Word? Well, it's not copied from God's Word. It is a restatement. It is our understanding of who we are based on God's Word. And we have drawn those things out of Scripture. Do we always get it right? No. I'm not perfect. I, I'm not claiming to be a Pope. I'm not claiming to be perfect. The elders aren't perfect. I love these guys. We sit around and commiserate all the time about how imperfect we are. We understand it. It's a high calling of leadership to say, I'm a slave to the Word of God. Now understand, during Luther's time, you couldn't translate the Word of the Lord into the common tongue. Luther would later go on and and work tirelessly to translate the New Testament and to begin translating the Old Testament. Others before him had been put to death for that very thing, trying to get the Bible in the language of the people. And the Catholic Church said no. He fought. He stood before that council and made a declaration about the authority of God's word. I bet 80% of you right now, maybe higher, have a device in your pocket or maybe in your purse that if you pulled it out, you could in seconds bring up 50 different translations of the Word of God. And if you don't, you're sitting in a pew and right in front of you, there's the Bible. And we say often, take it. Many of you go home to a house and you have Bibles sitting on the shelves. And if you don't, I can tell you about stores that you can go to that has Bibles on its shelves. And if you don't want to leave your house, you can go on Amazon or Christian Book Distributor and you can find a women's Bible or a men's Bible or you can find it in every different language that suits you. You can find it with study notes geared to right where you are. We are inundated with opportunities to pick up the Word of God and read it. Next week, we're going to talk about implications of Scripture alone, but I will leave you with one. If you're not reading Scripture, you do not believe in the authority of Scripture. You can read all the Christian authors you want. You can listen to all the sermons you want. But if you're not picking it up for yourself and digging into the Word of God, then you're not trusting in the authority of Scripture alone. You have an opportunity that Luther would have only dreamed of. Don't take it lightly. You see, Luther believed that if he could get Scripture in the hands of the people, it would change them forever. And you know what? He was right. You have Scripture in your hands. Open it pour over it, struggle with it, wrestle with it, cry out in prayer and say, God, I don't get it. Help me to understand. But read it. And weigh your thoughts and your intentions and my thoughts and my speech and our culture's thoughts. Weigh it all against the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have such a privileged place in history. Opportunities to read and study your Word abound but so also do the screaming voices of other authorities in our life that cry out to us, listen to me, look here, I'm right. And Father, so often the authority of the voice of Scripture, your voice, is allowed to be drowned out by the other voices. And that was the situation that Luther faced in his day. And as we'll look at next week, In many ways, even as a Protestant church, we are in the same dangerous position. And I pray that each one of us would ask ourselves, if we were to stand before a table of all we think, all we believe, could we say these things are based on Scripture and Scripture alone? Father, thank You for Your Word that teaches us who you are in spite of our own sinfulness and our misguided notions you cut through with the sword of your word. And your word tells us about Jesus Christ, who came and died in our place and rose again. It is your word above all other earthly authority that proclaims salvation. May we accept that truth based on the authority of your word. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.